This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Everybody. Welcome to another Thursday episode. Uh, I went a little long, or maybe some would say I went a lot long with that series of questions for Andy McCarthy. But do not let your hearts be troubled. There are more questions and more importantly, more answers in the second half of our conversation. So let's get started. All right, let me ask you a hypothetical, which I hate, but you have a head full of classified information because of your your time as an AUSA and the nature of the cases you prosecute. You have a head full of it. Let's decide that or, or or let's assume Penguin Random House decides to pay you a lot of money to write a book and you lay it all out and you're charged. And your defense is, well, I had dinner with President Obama or I played golf with President Trump. And uh, and they declassified all of that. I mean, can you in every future prosecution, can the defense say, well, a president declassified that. Let me call him as a witness. If you don't have to memorialize it, then 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 to me, that makes the president the witness on whether or not that material remain classified or maybe that maybe I'm wrong about that. No, I think you're right. It it may be that. Um. My recollection of how the legal test on this works, I did happen to run a case one time where the defense tried to call a lot of top officials, not the president, but I think the attorney general uh, and maybe even the secretary of state. And the, the legal tests that applied were it was a high test of relevance to begin with. Uh, but also, if there was some other alternative to calling the uh top official that would give you the um, information that you needed, um, then you would have to content yourself with that. Uh, and I, I I think I agree with, um, with what you're suggesting, which is that um, if there were not a requirement of compliance with the Presidential Records Act so that there would have to be some documentary proof that something got declassified, you could get down to a situation where the only possibility of proving my defense would be to have the president come in as a fact witness in the case. Now, there might be, you know, there could be a chain of people in the middle that that were possible witnesses. Uh, but there, you and I can sit here and imagine all day the objections to that kind of testimony. Um, so that could be the kind of case where um, where that would have to happen. Now, interestingly, Trey, in connection with the with the Capitol riot, I, I, I just your question suggests this to me, and I think it's a point worth making. There are a number of defendants who wanted to call President Trump as a witness in those cases. 
to make the argument that he was either complicit or that he had put them up to it or whatever. And I would just note that the Justice Department uniformly objected to those requests and prevailed uh, in court. And that the Justice Department never even suggested it that, you know, President Trump was not an unindicted co-conspirator in those cases. Um, they took the position that the defendants were responsible for their own activities and, and therefore his testimony was irrelevant because they had never shown any factual nexus between the violence of the day and something he said that that was in the actionable nature of incitement that caused it. Um but that issue did get litigated, whether you could call the president or not. And so far, the, at least the judges of the district court in the District of Columbia have said no. All right. I am going to ask you a couple of case specific questions, case specific only because the facts are in this case. It could apply to other cases as well. Let's assume um, and I think for for some reason, President Trump relies upon the defense that he had declassified the information that was uh, that was found. Right. Does he himself have to testify to that? Can he uh, can that uh, does the prosecution have to prove that he did not declassify it? That it that, how does that work in practicality in this in this litigation? Well, I, I think first of all. You would you would run headlong into this um, relevance issue that I mentioned a second ago. So the problem for, I think, President Trump's defense as far as declassification is concerned, is it's really not a defense to the charges in the case. And what a court is always going to say is, even if I assume this is true, how does it advance the ball in terms of, of what needs to be proved in connection with the trial. So if we could take the, the charges and the indictment in two different buckets, let's say on one in one bucket we have what we're loosely calling the espionage act counts, right? But what we'll really mean is, is the uh, willful retention of national defense information. And in the other bucket, we have the obstruction counts. As far as, as, far as the espionage acts are concerned, even if you believe that President Trump declassified all of the documents, that would not settle the question whether the documents were national defense information. The Espionage Act doesn't talk about classified information. It, it refers explicitly to national defense information. So the fact that something has classification markings on it or the fact that it may be classified information does not settle the question whether it is national defense information or not. So declassification would not be a defense. He could have declassified it. And if the document contains information that goes is relevant to the national defense, then it's a national defense document, whether he declassified it or not. And in the obstruction bucket, um, the Justice Department didn't want to get into this issue of whether President Trump declassified the documents or not. So when they issued the grand jury subpoena in, I believe, May of 2022, they were careful to write in the grand jury subpoena all documents bearing classification markings rather than to refer to them as classified information. 
because they didn't want him to be able to say, I declassified it, I don't have to turn those over. So they made it about the physical markings of the document. So I think in the first instance, what a court is going to say is I don't really see the relevance of that. Now, mind you, it wouldn't stop President Trump if he wanted to testify and he, he testified that he declassified them. I don't think a court is going to stop him from doing that on relevance grounds. Um, but it, I think you're right that if there's no documentary support that he declassified them, the only way he can prove that he did is either to, to take the stand and testify that he did, or if there happened to be a witness on hand when he you know, said whatever, you know, abracadabra type thing um, would make these documents declassified. If there was somebody there who could attest to that, that person could testify. Um, there was some talk, Trey, that um, there was some kind of a standing order that if former President Trump took documents out of the Oval Office and brought them to the residence, there was a standing order that they were deemed declassified. I think they've retreated from that. I don't think that there's a document that actually says that. And there are enough people who were in the intelligence community who've come forward and said, I, I don't I've never heard of such a thing that I don't think they're going to go there. But it's uh, it's possible they could, you know, if there is anything that supports that, I guess we'll be hearing about it. All right. There are two things, Andy, that I think are important for our listeners to take away from what you just said. What they constantly hear that the president had no intent to harm the country, no desire, didn't sell it, is interesting but irrelevant. And the defense, uh, oh, but that was declassified. I declassified that. Interesting, maybe, but also irrelevant for this prosecution. Correct. All right. Something that may be relevant, the crime fraud exception. I was a little, uh, this is what threw me off, I guess. And this is why I need your help. I, I was primarily just a, a homicide prosecutor. And, and so, you know, a lot more about this stuff than I do. I mean, if a client comes to you and says, hey, Andy, I'm thinking about doing this. And you say, wait a minute, do not do that. That is unlawful. Is that conversation not protected by, I, I mean, can they, can they pierce attorney client because I discussed the possibility? Do you think that was the right ruling, I guess, to, to, to kind of pierce that attorney client privilege and talk to the president's lawyer? I think in the hypothetical that you just laid out, that would be a protected conversation. Okay. Because that, there is no fair interpretation of that conversation in which you were being recruited uh, as a lawyer to help your client carry out a crime or a fraud. In fact, as you articulate the hypothetical, it's the opposite, right? You're you're trying to keep your client on the right side of the law, which is what we want lawyers to do, and why we want clients if they're if they're thinking about engaging in questionable activity, we want them to come to their lawyers and tell them have the lawyers tell them not to do that, right? So we don't want to interpret the attorney-client privilege or the crime fraud exception in a way that I think would would uh, stop those kinds of conversations from happening. So the crime fraud exception is supposed to apply um, 
there's a lot of um, there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. Let me just lay out what it is and and why there's misunderstandings. If a client comes to a lawyer in a way that is designed to help the client commit a crime or carry out a fraud, and sometimes those are the same things, um, then those conversations are not protected. It, they're almost as if uh, I don't want to let me not use a, something that'll just confuse things. Uh, let's start with that as the premise. The, the the client comes to the lawyer for help carrying out a crime or a fraud, that and the lawyer indulges that wittingly or not wittingly. Now, I want to say I want to dwell for a second on that wittingly or not wittingly, because what I almost did when I just corrected myself was to say this is almost like a co-conspirator exception to the hearsay rules, where if you have two conspirators who are having a conversation about uh, a, a, about achieving the objective of the conspiracy, the, the hearsay objection doesn't apply, and those conversations could be uh, admitted in front of the jury in a, in a trial. The reason I corrected myself and didn't go there is it's a common misunderstanding that the lawyer and the, the client in the crime fraud exception situation have to be collaborators. They don't. It commonly happens that way when it, when it applies, but it doesn't always. So here, for example, the probably the best way to explain this is to use the, the hard example, the concrete example that's in front of us, right? The What the government alleges in the documents case with respect to President Trump is that he duped his lawyer into misrepresenting to the government that when the Trump team turned over 38 documents with classification markings in June of 2022, that that was the entirety of the documents bearing classification markings that were still at Mar-a-Lago. And what the prosecution alleges is that former President Trump and other people, but mainly the, the other gentleman who was uh, charged with him, uh, Walt Nada, they say that basically they secreted from what the lawyers were going to be able to look at a bunch of boxes of documents that contained other classified information. And then they let the lawyer, whose name is Evan Corcoran, look at the remaining boxes under circumstances where he was led to believe that was all the boxes. And then he went through the boxes, found 38 documents, and they presented those to the government on June 3rd, I believe, 2022, in a carefully wrapped package. It's important to the government that it's carefully wrapped because it shows that it, it suggests that they believe these were still classified. That is, President Trump had not declassified them. He never said he had declassified them in that connection. And they gave them not only this package of documents, but because this is answerable to a, a grand jury subpoena, they gave them a sworn statement for transmission to the grand jury that said, we have done a thorough search at Mar-a-Lago, and these are the only 38 documents here that contain classified markings. So the theory of the crime fraud exception, and I should, I should, um, I should underscore for our listeners, Trey, that you and I are having this conversation uh, now having read the indictment 
speculating or hypothesizing in an educated way what the judge ruled. But in fact, because that was a grand jury ruling, we haven't seen the ruling yet, right? But what we understand is that Judge uh, Beryl Howell in the District of Columbia ruled that President Trump uh, conversations with Evan Corcoran were not protected by the attorney-client privilege because he was using his lawyer, unbeknownst to the lawyer, as a as a tool basically to transmit false information to the grand jury and to the FBI. So that is the basis on which the, the crime fraud exception has been invoked. Um, and it's I think it's a controversial ruling. Probably the most important ruling that we know of in the case, because Corcoran evidently had a practice of when he had conversations with former President Trump, he would make elaborate recordings, which were then turned into notes. So he's got very long uh, descriptions of these conversations he had with, with Trump, to the point that in the indictment, they're they are excerpted as if they were recordings, right? I think those are actually taken from uh, Corcoran's notes rather than recorded uh, conversations. But that's how elaborate the notes are. The reason I think it's controversial, other than what you've obviously laid out, I mean, it's tremendously controversial, and it's the backbone of their case as far as uh, obstruction is concerned. Uh, but the interesting thing to me about this, Trey, has always been everything of importance in the Trump case happened in Florida. The documents were in Florida. The meetings were in Florida. The FBI and the Justice Department came to Mar-a-Lago to get the documents back, even this meeting that we're talking about. The defense didn't do anything in Washington. The federal government, the prosecution, it wasn't uh, Jack Smith at the time, because this case was investigated by the Biden Justice Department uh, up until November of 2022. So they they put together most of this case. He was like the cherry on top at the end, right? Um, but they made the decision to set up shop in Washington, D.C. and use a grand jury in Washington, D.C. That had nothing to do with anything the defense decided to do. And they were going to, I think for a long time, they planned to bring the case in Washington, even though all the action happened in Florida, on the theory that if you obstruct a grand jury that's sitting in Washington, that gives Washington venue. And I think Smith, who's a very experienced uh, prosecutor, looked at the kind of case that he wanted to bring and realized that there was not venue over a lot of, especially the Espionage Act counts in Washington. So they ended up, I think, probably in the last few weeks of the investigation, representing a lot of the case to the grand jury in Florida so they could bring the case down there. But the reason I think it's an interesting choice is um, special counsels who have investigated cases uh, affecting President Trump or in which President Trump was a uh, is a major player uh, have tended to set up shop in Washington um, in part because that's where a lot of action in in some of the investigations happened. For example, Durham, I think, had to be in Washington because that's where all the action was. But, you know, Bob Mueller, there's a lot of places he could have set up that investigation. He chose to set it up in Washington. 
Uh, the Justice Department could easily have set up this investigation in Florida. They set it up in Washington. And the reason is there's a local rule in Washington, which is not uh, replicated in every other district in the country. It, it wasn't in, when I was in the Southern District of New York, we didn't have a rule like this. All grand jury litigation in the District of Columbia federal court is handled by the chief judge of the district who throughout the uh, course of these investigations up until very recently was Beryl Howell, who used to be the um, top lawyer on the Judiciary Committee for Pat Leahy, who is a very senior partisan Democrat who was on that committee for many years. And she was put on the district court by President Obama after serving Leahy for a number of years. And she has reliably ruled against Trump's interest in all of these investigations. Now, I am not saying that she didn't have her reasons, and I'm not saying that these were, you know, I, I haven't heard of any of these rulings getting reversed up until now. But I do think it's fair to assume that the prosecutors figured they had a home game uh, in Washington. Uh, and I think it's going to be, you're going to get a claim when this when this case gets to pretrial litigation that the government forum shopped to get that very important ruling on crime fraud exception in Washington uh, in a case that should have been investigated in Florida. We're going to take a quick break. More of my conversation with Andy McCarthy is coming up. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Andy, I cannot afford uh, you for more time than I've had you, but I, but I have to take the chance. So I'm going to ask my final questions. Uh, and, and hope that you stay awake uh, during my last question. But you you just raised something, and you're going to think, yeah, I can tell you were just a little gutter homicide prosecutor because everybody in the world knows the answer to this question, but I don't know it. Can you resist an unlawful arrest, and can you obstruct an unpredicated or wrongly predicated investigation. In other words, if what you just raised about the District of Columbia, about venue and that uh, crime fraud exception ruling is undone, can you obstruct an unpredicated or unlawfully predicated investigation? I think as a matter of law, you can. Okay. Um, now, this, I think, Trey, most recently came up in a very interesting way in connection with General Flynn in the uh, in the Mueller investigation, um, in connection with the FBI's interview of General Flynn, like the day after he started as, I think it was his first full day in the office as National Security Advisor. Um, there was no investigative predicate for the FBI to investigate uh, or question General Flynn. Um, and there were indications factually that they not only knew that, I mean, 
Jim Comey has as much as said publicly that the protocol when the FBI wants to investigate a member of the president's staff is the attorney general is supposed to take it up with the White House counsel and they're supposed to make sure that the staffer knows what the parameters of the interview are and has a chance to get counsel. And often the White House, if the White House says potential liability, the White House wants to have a lawyer there for themselves. So, so this is like a sensitive thing. And Comey decided to just blow all that over and send a couple of agents to talk to Flynn under circumstances where there was no basic basis to believe that Flynn had committed a crime or that he was a clandestine agent of a foreign power working against the United States. It was absurd. Um, so Flynn speaks to the FBI agents who, by the way, do not think he's lying. Even though one of them is Peter Strzok, who's one of the, the main characters, the main players in the, in the investigation, right? But they don't believe, they, they think that Flynn has told them things that are inaccurate, but they don't think he did it on purpose. And he tells them a couple of times during the course of the interview, look, you guys were probably up on the phone, meaning you guys, you know, under FISA or whatever, you probably have a recording of the conversation you're asking me about. So they concluded he wasn't trying to lie with lie to them. Months later, um, Mueller gets appointed and they appoint all these alpha Democrat prosecutors to work on his staff. And all of a sudden, Flynn is charged with making false statements. And the story, at least, is that they put a lot of pressure on him, including the possibility of indicting his son, who was in business with him in connection with uh, another thing that had to do with Turkey and didn't have anything to do. All the prosecutions in Russiagate don't have anything to do with Russiagate, right? So to make a long story short, Flynn pleads guilty um, and then has second thoughts about pleading guilty and wants to withdraw his plea. By then, Trump finally gets another attorney general in Bill Barr. He assigns some experienced U.S. attorneys to look into various controversial matters that have gone on, including uh, with respect to the genesis for the Russiagate investigation. And one of them looks at the Flynn case and says they should never have investigated him in the first place. So Barr decides that they are going to pull the plug on the, on the prosecution. And his rationale is, um, and I think this was pretty controversial at the time, his rationale is we really didn't have a criminal basis to open an investigation. So it was wrong for the FBI to send investigators. Now, that is a reason for the Justice Department to exercise discretion not to charge somebody, but it is not a legal basis to dismiss a false statement claim. Now, Barr would argue, I think, that he thinks it is because he interpreted materiality, which is a, a essential element of a, of a full statements case, to say, since we didn't have a reason to investigate him in the first place, the, the things he said that weren't true, even if you get past whether he intended to, to lie, were not material to anything because we didn't have a basis to investigate him in the first place. That, I will tell you, is not the position that the Justice Department normally takes with respect to materiality. And I have seen cases where the Justice Department takes a different position and um, and usually wins those cases because materiality is not exactly a mountainous barrier to trying to get these, ca these cases done. So I know that's a more long-winded 
answer than you wanted probably, but the, the answer to the question is you can obstruct an investigation where it turns out that there was no crime and you can uh, be prosecuted for lying to an FBI agent or a grand jury under circumstances where they shouldn't have been investigated or they shouldn't have been, uh, yeah, they shouldn't have been investigating in the first place. For those who may not recall what Andy is making reference to, Jim Comey was being interviewed probably on a book tour. And he said that uh, they sent agents to the White House to interview Flynn, even though they would never have done that under President Obama. Uh, he, he said it. That's not Andy McCarthy and me saying that. That was Jim Comey saying that. Um, yes. And uh, and you are correct. Uh, the agents, at least one of them, uh, adduced uh, that he was not lying. And the reason they went if you recall, Andy, was some interviews on Sunday morning shows that Mike Pence had done. Right. So they were leading us to believe that it was their fear that Mike Pence might not show up well on Sunday morning shows that led them to go interview Michael Flynn. They were so concerned with his reputation that they went and interviewed Michael Flynn, which. Um, and they and Trey, I just add. They so knew they were doing something wrong that they didn't run it past the Justice Department because they knew even the Obama Justice Department would have told them, don't do that. Sally Yates was very, very not happy when she when right. she found out. And, right. and and Sally is not a flaming Republican. For those who do not know her, I got to let you go with two questions. All right. Two, Jack Smith. At, at least under the heading of trying to lay out President Trump's state of mind, I guess, kind of laid out references that President Trump was really, really impressed with the way that Hillary Clinton's lawyers yeah. had handled her own email situation. Uh, and that would be David Kendall uh, would have been her primary lawyer. So my question to you from an evidentiary standpoint they laid it out in the indictment. It's not crazy Republicans bringing up Hillary Clinton. It's literally in the indictment that President Trump was thinking about it. Does that in any way make the way that case was handled relevant if this goes to trial? I mean, they, they brought it up. Can President Trump's lawyers say, OK, you want to think talk about what he was thinking about? Let's tell the jury how you handled her. I, I think that it would be very difficult for President Trump to conduct his defense in a way that essentially puts Mrs. Clinton on trial. Now, this, I think, Trey, goes under the important heading, and I say important because I think it is an element of President Trump's defense, uh, under the heading of selective prosecution. And what I've tried to explain to people over the last week or so is that selective prosecution is a powerful argument in terms of trying to push back or, or persuade prosecutors not to exercise discretion to charge. And I think it's a powerful political argument. It will continue to be a powerful political argument um, for President Trump in the campaign ahead. But once the prosecutor decides, notwithstanding the claims of the defendant that uh, uh, or the claims of the suspect at the time that uh, he's been selectively 
prosecuted. Once he's once the prosecutor decides to pull the trigger and charge, I think the defense loses a lot of its steam legally for two reasons. First, as a pretrial motion to dismiss the indictment, it will fail because what President Trump wants to set up is the comparison between the way he was investigated and prosecuted and the way Mrs. Clinton was half-ass investigated and not prosecuted. And even though that's a very attractive argument, especially if you're pitching it to a jury, if you could, uh, it's not the legal test. So if you say that I'm being singled out, what the government is going to come back and say is he's not being singled out at all. Look at all these people who get prosecuted for classified information offenses and look at all these people who get prosecuted for obstruction. We prosecute plenty of people. Um, he's not been singled out. And I think on, that, on those grounds, that's why people routinely lose selective prosecution claims. It's just not a very good legal argument. Now, let's move to trial. At trial, it could work in terms of, I think, jury nullification, but it, a lot would hinge on how much evidence he got into the case, which is why your question about, um, about how the lawyer addressed David Kendall or how Trump addressed David Kendall and how that's in the indictment and, and Smith has decided to make that part of his case, does that give Trump a trap door to get Hillary evidence in? I think it does, but he's not going to get as much evidence in um, about the overall treatment of Mrs. Clinton compared to the overall treatment of him that will allow him to have enough to work with to make that as effective as it might otherwise be. And the jury is going to be instructed by the judge at the end of the case that the only issue for you, ladies and gentlemen of the of the jury, is has the government proved beyond a reasonable doubt the charges against President Trump? The fact that somebody else who may have committed analogous crimes was not prosecuted by the government is neither here nor there as far as what the issue is that the jury has to decide in the case. So maybe he'll get enough in there that he can make an argument that'll that'll tug at the jury, but I'd be surprised. I don't think even a, even a judge that's... Um, friendly to Trump. And we don't know if that's how the case is going to play out or not. But I don't see him getting enough information. No judge is going, no matter how you feel about Trump, no judge that I can ever had experience with in federal court is going to allow him to turn this case into a trial of Hillary Clinton. I think if they if he had evidence that the government committed misconduct, I, I think there are many judges who would let you put the government on trial but you're not going to be allowed to put on trial another person who's not there and not represented by it's just I, I just don't see that happening. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. All right. I'm going to combine my last two questions into one because I, I have I could literally keep you all day, Andy. And I know, I'm sure you're sitting there thinking you have you have kept me all day. <laughs> I, I, I really I really enjoyed this because it's a, it's a chance instead of trying to do this in five minutes to actually explain it, uh, and, it and kick it around. It cannot be done in five minutes, which is why I'm grateful Fox lets me do a podcast and I'm grateful that listeners will, you know, 
My wife may split this up over two of her walks instead of trying to walk <laughs> from here to Tierra del Fuego to get it all in, but I'm going to combine two. The audio tape to me was pretty damning. Uh, just looking at it from an evidentiary value, I mean, it just screamed knowledge, consciousness of guilt. So I want you to, you know, what do you think? How powerful, how wrong am I about the audio tape? And then the other question, I'm going to let you handle both of them. I have in my head this phrase, the police framed a guilty person. There can be probable cause to believe that you committed an offense and also jury nullification, which you and I made reference to. Can prosecutors factor in non-evidentiary reasons to decide not to go forward with a prosecution? Are there other factors that could say, I mean, we're always told we're a nation of laws. No one's above the law. But I mean, the reality is sitting presidents can't be indicted. So one person is above the law. Are those factors relevant as prosecutors decide whether to bring criminal charges? Let me let me go back to the uh, to the tape question first, um, because I think that's that's quicker. I think I think you're right and I'm wrong or I, my initial impression was wrong with respect to the tape. When I heard the tape, I thought the same thing you did. That is, this is very bad in terms of for him, in terms of knowledge and intent, which are things that that um, that have to be proved by the prosecution. I was more inclined to poo-poo that tape, not entirely, but at least partially, than I think a lot of people were, because I thought the main thrust of the tape was that he didn't declassify the documents. And I guess the reason I didn't pay that much mind is I've been saying to months for people that the declassification of the documents is a red herring. It's not a defense. So it seemed to me that that part of the indictment was more blowing up what his public position was with respect to what he was being investigated for than the, you know, what the four corners of the trial are going to be about. But I think, you know, you're right. In the four corners of the trial, his intent and knowledge are very important. And that's a powerful piece of evidence with respect to that. So I think it will be an important piece, even if I didn't uh, focus in on that uh, at the beginning. Now, on prosecutorial discretion, um, you know, prosecutor, you say no one's above the law, and that's right. Prosecutorial discretion is part of our law and always has been. And there are a, there are more reasons than we could list for why prosecutors decide not to bring cases in many situations. When I indicted the blind shake uh, back a million years ago, one of the big considerations was whether by indicting him, we would destabilize countries that were of importance to the United States. That had nothing to do with whether he had con committed the crimes charge and nothing to do with whether it was important to do terrorism cases or not against someone who might be a, a, the commander of a, of a terrorist organization. It was strictly the question whether the interests of the United States were better served by not bringing charges and extraditing him to, a, to another country than they would have been by keeping him here and prosecuting him, given all of our other interests globally. So in every single, every single case where you're dealing with 
you know, a fraught political context, there can be a lot of reasons that are unrelated to the case and the evidence in the case that would argue for not bringing the case. Um, in connection with President Trump, um, my own view of it, for, for what it's worth, is I think it would be, for example, uh, beneficial to the country if you had a deal. I, I should back up a little bit. I think it's terrible for the country. I can't think of anything worse for the country, especially what I hear back when I talk to people about the perception, which I think is a reality, that we have a two-tiered justice system. And I often think, Trey, that um, the political class in this country that is perpetuating that does not understand the fire they're playing with by having that system. Because our existence as a political community and a flourishing society hinges on not only the perception, but the reality that the justice system is fair, that we we are actually dedicated to the proposition of equal justice under the law. And I think you don't, a lot of people who are cavalier about this don't understand that if the public ceases to believe that the proceedings in, uh, in our justice system are fair and legitimate and reasonably even-handed, uh, we could lose that. And if we lose it, we lose everything. So I, I just think we have a potential catastrophe that we're not paying enough attention to. And the fact that Trump will lose a, um, a, a selective prosecution claim doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of persuasive force to the idea that Hillary Clinton committed comparably egregious offenses, including obstruction, and not only didn't get prosecuted, the system allowed her lawyers basically to run the investigation, whereas we just spent however many minutes talking about how the system threw Trump's lawyers in the grand jury and made them into key witnesses in the case. I think everywhere from soup to nuts, if that's your comparison, this case rightly makes people angry. That's not a defense of what President Trump did, because to my mind, the two tiers of justice problem here is that she didn't get prosecuted, not that he is getting prosecuted. But it happens that we have the fortuity that President Biden is dealing with his own classified information problem. And I can't think of anything that would exacerbate the situation more than to have this situation where they've basically thrown the book at Trump, not that he didn't deserve it. Um, and Biden's going to get a pass. And the reason Biden's going to get a pass is like the Hillary precedent, which disappears when we're talking about Trump, reemerges when we're talking about Biden. And I just think it's going to get people very angry. And I kind of think could, the cynic in me, I know we're, we're trying to keep a lot of politics uh, out of this, but I really think the Democrats want to run against Trump. And they know that when they when they nudge at his base this way and they thumb their their, uh, you know, they put a thumb in the eye to the base, it gets them angry. It makes it more likely that he will win the nomination. And then they figure that they'll, they'll kill him in the election. So a lot of the cynicism and playing with fire about the fairness of the justice system is politically motivated, which makes people, I, I think, even more angry. Um, so. I would like to see, I'm not holding my breath that this will ever happen, 
But I would like to see a mutual stand down, at least on the Espionage Act stuff, um, where if Biden is getting a pass, then Trump ought to get a pass and make it go away mutually. And then we commit to even handed enforcement here on out on the Espionage Act stuff or, or the care and handling of classified documents. And there's a way to do this that's credible, I think, because one of the things these uh, series of cases where people have mishandled classified information, I think, has shown us is we have some things in the law that we need to fix with respect to how documents are handled, what needs to be proved. And, um, you know, the, the Espionage Act is over a century old. It could use some overhauling. There's a lot we could do uh, where we could say, you know, from here on out, we're going to we're going to we're going to even handedly uh, with an eye toward what the national security of the United States demands, investigate and prosecute these cases. I don't expect they're going to do that. I, ex I expect that, um, you know, they're going to go forward with the case on Trump. Biden's going to get a pass and people are going to be even angrier. But I, I really hope that. And I, I feel foolish saying this because I think it's a it's a futile hope. But I really hope that, uh, you know, some people of goodwill on both sides realize the fire they're playing with here and, and take some steps to address it, because th this could be really bad for the country. Andy, we are going to end there because that is actually the beginning. When Fox said, we want you to do a podcast because you're so terrible on television, we want to put you in a, <laughs> in a forum where nobody has to look at you. They, they said, you can start any way you want to start. And I started with a series of podcasts on fairness and what the belief that you are being treated unfairly does to you, what it does to the object of the unfairness. It causes you to no longer value fairness as a virtue. It causes you to redefine what fair is. I mean, there's a reason that literature is just riddled with examples of, of what it does to the human condition to be, look, you and I were prosecutors, but there's nothing we would hate worse than for the wrong person to be convicted for the wrong crime. I guarantee you it bothers me and you more to see someone who is factually innocent, incarcerated. It bothers us every bit as much as it does the ACLU. It, it ruins you when you think that you are consistently the object of unfairness. So when you say that we are playing with fire as a culture, when we when we don't acknowledge that there are people who really do think that they are on the receiving end of disparate treatment um it 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 it, it impacts the way you view almost every other facet of life so uh, you are correct to bring that up and uh and i do uh, it makes me all the more uh, miss the old job you and i used to have where where the politics was just not part of what we did amen Andy McCarthy, I don't know what Fox pays you. I can tell you it's not enough, uh, especially in moments like this where you have to have someone who did it, who understands the way the system works, the way it should work, who knows the law. So, you know, I need to hang on to my own job, so I won't say a whole lot. <laughs> right? 
right now, I, I they they pay me ten dollars a month, and they're talking about cutting my salary even beyond that. But whatever they pay you is not enough, Andy McCarthy. They're saving it on the wardrobe thing. That's <laughs> I can't thank you enough, and I reserve the right to recall this witness as uh, as the trial develops. Is that okay? I'll consider myself still under oath. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Andy McCarthy, and thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.